God's word. Mark 13, verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down or, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then, if anyone says to you, look, Here is the Christ, or look, there he is. Do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Read that far from God's word. We discovered last time in the earlier part of chapter 13 is that one of the chief ways to avoid being led astray is not to confuse the time of the destruction of the temple with the time of the end of the world. Those two are different events, and Jesus had already begun to teach about that. And then in tonight's passage, Jesus further answers his disciples' two core questions from verse 4. Namely, when will the temple be destroyed, and what will be the sign? That brings us to our main point for tonight. Watch out. By listening to what Jesus revealed, his disciples understand Take right actions and avoid being led astray. First, God provided a way to understand, verse 14. He gave action steps to do based on that understanding, verses 14b to 18. And third, Jesus forewarned his followers how to avoid being led astray in verses 19 to 23. So here we go, verse 14, the abomination of desolation passage. What is an abomination? And what abomination does Jesus have in mind here? Well, the term abomination appears more than 100 times in the Old Testament and just a few times in the New Testament. An abomination is normally a great sin against God that's worthy of death. You might think first of an abomination as a sexual sin. Maybe if you were reading through Leviticus 18, you would see that Scripture does, in fact, use the word abomination to refer to sexual sins, such as adultery, homosexuality, and bestiality. But more often throughout the Bible, abomination refers instead to major covenant violations, especially idolatry, serving a different God other than the one true God. So what is an abomination of desolation? It's an action of gross offense against God. Here, Jesus quoted a phrase, abomination of desolation, that was written three times in the book of Daniel. There had already been one fulfillment of this prophecy from Daniel when something offensive happened in the temple, which I'll talk about in a moment. But here, Jesus is talking about a future time when it will happen again. Some abomination of desolation will happen in the temple again. So first, we need to go over what his audience would know and catch you up to speed if you're not aware of what happened in the past. The first fulfillment of the prophecies from Daniel. So first let me read Daniel 11, 31 and 32, which are talking about an enemy king. Quote, 
Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. End quote. Deuteronomy 11, I'm sorry, Daniel 11, 31 and 32. So this prophecy from Daniel had an initial fulfillment 200 years prior to Jesus referring to this sort of thing going to happen a second time. 200 years before this, something happened. So that happened in 167 BC when the temple was attacked. An army from Syria came with a general whose name was Antiochus Epiphanes. After the army from Syria took control of the city of Jerusalem, that general entered the temple in Jerusalem. And now we know from the Old Testament that a non-priest was never to enter the inner part of the temple. And certainly a foreigner was never to enter the Holy of Holies in God's temple. But here, what caused disgust or abomination was when this pagan general entered God's holy temple and the precincts of the Holy of Holies. And simply entering wasn't all the general did. The general then set up an altar of the Greek god Zeus within the Lord God's holy temple. The general even went so far as to take a pig and to sacrifice it on God's altar of burnt offerings. Now, since you probably know that our God had commanded that uh, swine or pigs were never to be used as sacrifices in his holy worship, this general knew that. And so we understand for the general to enter, and furthermore, for the general to sacrifice a pig of all things, was a knowingly offensive choice done in order to be as offensive as possible to God and to the Jewish people that he had just conquered. You know how conquering generals are apt to do that sort of thing. But this one was against God in his temple. In fact, this act of idolatry and insult was so offensive to the Jewish people that they would soon rise up in rebellion against the Syrian army and what was called the Maccabean Revolt. So now you're caught up to speed. That's the first abomination of desolation incident that was a fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. But that's not yet what Jesus is referring to. I was just giving you the background. Here, Jesus is speaking about something that will happen yet in the future after his lifetime. So there's a second fulfillment of Daniel's words yet to come. And given the context of Jesus' comments here, he had in mind a time forthcoming when this whole type of thing would happen again. When that audience of Jesus that day heard Jesus say the sign was the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, immediately what came to their mind was the story I just told you. It was more than folklore. It was painful history for them. They would all immediately be cognizant and aware of the terrible previous scene that there was a general at one point who was standing in God's holy temple. Now, some of these people who were alive and heard Jesus say these statements perhaps would still be alive 40 years later when what Jesus said did happen. In September of A.D. 70, Another general, this time a Roman Empire general named Titus, entered the temple and stood where an unbelieving foreigner ought not to stand, in the Holy of Holies, in the temple of the one living and true God. 
And so here you see Jesus is giving an understanding. He had been asked in verse 4 from his disciples, when and by what sign will this temple be destroyed? And Jesus is giving this answer. When you see this general standing in the Holy Holies in the temple, that's when and that's with a sign for you. They would know the temple's about to be destroyed. And after that, not one stone to be left on another. So God provided a way to understand. It would take four decades, but they understand what to look for. That brings us to point number two. Jesus gave action steps to do based on that understanding. Jesus isn't done. He's not giving his teaching based on what the questions are that come from the disciples. He's giving his teaching based on his wisdom and his love, knowing what God's people need to know and providing what they need to know. He gave them the sign, sure. The sign that predicted event, the event and the when, sort of. But he also gave them the additional blessing of knowing what to do when it happens, which, as you see as I break this down now, is very important. It's life or death. Here Jesus says in verse 14b, So when you see that sign, the sign of the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, you're supposed to do something about it. What are you supposed to do about it? Quote, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So let me be clear. Jesus is saying when you see the sign, Run! That's literally what he's saying to them. The command from Jesus to flee not only tells them what to do, it also gives a sense of how urgently they are to react. Jesus explained further in verse 15, so let me share a quick fact about rooftops in those days so you understand this command. A person would go on the roof of his flat-roofed house as regularly as we might go out onto our decks, our patios, or our porches. And much like you might have seen, or maybe your house has a second-story deck, people on flat-topped houses had two options to come down. If you have a second-story deck, you might be able to come back into the house and go down to the ground, or you might have an external staircase to go down. Same thing in those ancient houses. You could option A, take the staircase from the roof down into the house, and proceed down the inside stairs to the front door of the house and then exit out the front door to the street. Or, option B, instead take the other staircase from the roof that leads straight down to the ground on the outside of the home without ever needing to enter the house. So in verse 15, now you're ready to understand what he says. We hear the urgency when Jesus instructed them not to do what most people would do. When you hear the alarm, when you see, when someone comes shouting, when it becomes clear to you that the abomination of desolation has happened, what would you likely want to do? Honey, let me go inside. I quick got to grab whatever. The coat, that loaf of bread I just made, quickly grabbing a pair of shoes. Most people would do that. And Jesus instructed them not to take the few extra seconds that it would take them to go down through the house. Flee instead as urgently as possible using the outside staircase because those few seconds may cost you your life. You're getting a sense of the urgency, but there's more. Verse 16 further tells us how urgently they must flee. Any persons who happen to be in the field working ought not to take any extra moments to return back from the field to the place wherever his coat was. 
but must instead, from that exact point, wherever he was in the field, turn and run away instantly. Perhaps his coat was merely a few steps, but in the wrong direction? Don't risk it. That decision would take off precious time from your fleeing, time which you can't afford to lose. And once these, these people become aware that the bad general is in the holy temple, and the sign is given of the destruction of the temple upon them, then very quickly a time of distress will set in across the city. You're getting that sense already, but verse 17 gives it further. Here Jesus told about the distress for those who were not able to flee fast enough. Jesus mentioned any women who happened to be pregnant or any women who had given birth recently enough that they're still nursing their babies. And our compassionate Savior brings this to our minds because we have common knowledge about women in both of these categories that they would not be able to flee very fast. So what about them? And all we get from Jesus is the word alas. You see it in verse 17? What does that mean? Alas for them means it's not good for them. Why is it not good? Well, because any pregnant woman or any woman with a nursing infant can't move fast enough to keep up with the urgency that the situation will demand. And our master teaches in such a way that the rest is left to our imagination. You already understand. So that's all that needs to be said. Verse 18, pray that it will not happen in winter. Why not? Because if it happens during winter, everything's different. Some rivers will be higher and therefore impossible to cross to keep fleeing without drowning. Some foods will be more scarce in the winter and at night, overnight, it would be colder, causing greater risk of dying from all of these and they'd already be at risk from dying from this attacking general and his army. And then in real history, fast forward to AD 70 and the years following when historians would write down what happened. There's a Jewish historian, Josephus, who reported that in that year, in the year AD 70, when the things came true that Jesus is here prophesying, the Romans crucified so many Jews that they ran out of wood for crosses. Inside the city, there was widespread murder, disease, starvation, even cannibalism. Josephus further reported that around a million people died during the attack on Jerusalem in AD 70. And scholars love to argue about the numbers. But whether those numbers are exact or not quite exact, about a million, should not distract us from the clear indication of the terrors of this event. And that it was exactly as Jesus prophesied that it would be, which is exactly the point that Jesus was making that day. When you see the sign, run. Which brings us to our third point. Jesus forewarned his followers how to avoid being led astray. Verse 19, the event is now described by our Savior as worse than anything that has happened since the world was created until that time. And furthermore, it's worse than anything that will happen from that time until the end of the world. I don't know what to tell you about that other than the fact that this statement is coming from the mouth of Jesus through the pen of Mark, who's carried along by the Holy Spirit in writing. So how's that for a warning? Verse 20, Jesus added that God shortened the event. The idea here that God, quote, shortened the days, end quote, is a reference to the siege lasting apparently only five months when it actually happened, which though unspeakably horrible while it lasted 
was, you have to admit, a relatively short time frame for an ancient attack on a city or a nation. It's even a short time frame for modern warfare. Jesus informed us that God shortened the time so that there would be some survivors at all. Otherwise, everyone would have died, verse 20. Furthermore, God shortened the days for the sake of the elect, his, his own chosen people. Verse 21, when this terrible time arrives, there will be some imposters who lie in order to trick people who are trying to run to safety. Their trick would be to say that Jesus has returned a second time. Perhaps they could get some believers who are fleeing to, to believe them for a moment and gather in a house or area, and then the robbers would take their money and take their lives. I mean, it's not that hard to figure out what, what robbers and murderers will do. Jesus warned that those who are running away must not be deterred from their running by falling for such de- deceptive traps. And then, you know how the IRS keeps telling us that they'll never telephone us asking for our personal banking information as a, a way to safeguard us from scams? Here, Jesus does a similar thing. He, he's telling them that he himself will not appear in those moments. When the abomination of desolation happens and you're running, I'm not going to appear That won't be the moment for my second coming. So you always know it's a trap whenever someone says to you, come here, Christ is around the corner. Come on, come on, come on, join us. Christ is around the corner. You always know it's a lie and a trap because I'm not coming at that time. Remember the words of Jesus. Remember that Jesus himself said right here in verse 21, do not believe it. It's right there in the verse. Do not stop your fleeing on that day because of believing such lies, but rather keep right on fleeing until you reach your safe place. Verse 22, there will be other people who claim to be the Christ. Again, the Jewish historian Josephus later reported what actually happened around the year 70, that many imposters stood up, and each one said that he was the Messiah. The historian also reported the fulfillment at that time of what Jesus says here, that the imposters tricked the masses of people and fooled them by performing some sort of, like verse 21 says, verse 22 says, wonders and signs. Now, if there were wonders or miracles, something that happened, it was done with the devil's dark magic. But more likely and more often, it simply wasn't a miracle at all. Uh, Just good old-fashioned tricks and deception. People fooling people, which happens all the time. It was bad enough to be a threat of physical violence by occupying and vicious Roman armies but it was made all the worse by there being false Christs and false prophets constantly rising up trying to lead people astray. So at the end of all this, what does Jesus say in verse 23? Be on guard. Now there's wisdom for you. That's love. That's Jesus explaining to his disciples and to future readers of Mark's gospel that they ought to be careful. It's the fourth time in chapter 13, that Mark used the same word, to look or to see or to watch out. Here it's translated just fine here, be on your guard. It's an important thing to take away from the passage for the disciples. One way to be alert to false messiahs is to remember they're always showing off signs and wonders. (laughs) They need people to be impressed by their fake miracles because they have no message to offer. What's their message? There's no gospel in their message. What's fascinating that we've noticed as we've studied the Gospel of Mark is that the genuine Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, was restrained. 
not restrained from performing signs and wonders at all, or not even limited in it, but rather what I mean is that he was restrained from using the miracles to impose faith on people. Why? Because as we've also noticed repeatedly in studying Mark and learning about Jesus, fundamentally the good news of Jesus is not about the miracles. On the contrary, the miracles only point to the best part, which is the death of Jesus for our sins and the resurrection of Jesus for our victory. So fundamentally, the good news of Jesus is not about speculating about the second coming either. (laughs) The good news is about us being rescued and keeping the faith until the end and sharing the good news around the world. As Jesus said back in verse 10, the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. So what have we seen? We, We watch out by listening to what Jesus revealed. As disciples understand, we take right actions and avoid being led astray. God provided a way for them to understand. He gave action steps for them to do based on that understanding. And he forewarned his followers how to avoid being led astray. So that was his blessing and wisdom for those who would live or pass along to those who would live through the problems and dark days of A.D. 70. So what would be the application to us today? give you a couple of concluding applications to us. I have two. Number one, understand. I'll take you back to our first verse, verse 14. Let the reader understand. Let the reader understand. One of your application points is to understand. We're supposed to get this. Mark, when he wrote this passage, put all the emphasis in all the same places that Jesus put the emphasis when Jesus spoke it. Both Jesus and Mark want us to get it. The Holy Spirit wrote these words along with Mark because the Holy Spirit wants us to get it. The Father, God the Father, sent His Son into the world to teach these things so that we would understand it. We would get it. Get what? We'll grasp the truth that when Jesus gave instruction concerning future events, His purpose was not to satisfy the curiosity of His disciples or to answer all their speculative questions. What a rabbit hole that would be unhelpful. Instead, the purpose of our Savior was to protect them, to guide them, and to instruct them by giving them true understanding. That's key. That's life-saving. Please notice that Jesus gave relatively little attention to the question the disciples did ask, which was when. (laughs) Please understand why Jesus gave so much attention to the question the disciples failed to ask, which was, How shall we live faithfully? The disciples were behind in their understanding. First of all, when you get done hearing everything that Jesus taught live in person in chapters 11 and 12, you should not, sir, as you exit the temple in the beginning of chapter 13, turn to Jesus and comment about the wonderful stones. Way behind in your understanding from the start. You could comment about anything that Jesus said, which is more important than the wonderful stones of the building. Way behind in their understanding. Second of all, when Jesus said the stones were to be dismantled so that not one stone would be left on another, the disciples should not then fixate on when. Does it really matter when? That's just morbid curiosity. 
while they have Jesus with them, live in person, gracious and patient and eager to teach them what they need to know, what they should have been seeking to understand was what their relationship with God is supposed to be like without a temple. You mean the entire temple building will be taken down so that we will no longer offer sacrifices to be made right with God? How will we be made right with God then? What will be our sacrifice, Rabbi, sir? That's what they should have been interested in. That's the understanding they should have gotten. After the temple's destroyed and everything that their Jewish mindset and Jewish history had understood to be God and his temple now undergoing a huge change, what are the basic things they would need to know, understand, and remember? Jesus, could you please teach us those before you go? That's what the disciples should have asked. And if you'll notice from chapter 13, verse 1, down through so far, we've got to verse 23. Jesus gave teaching as if they had asked that question. Isn't that beautiful? The merciful Savior tells us what we need when we don't even ask the right questions. Please understand that and take the words of Jesus as tremendously precious in the swirly gig that is end times eschatology discussion. (laughs) That's number one, understand. Number two, avoid being led astray. Is that not a theme here? Let me just quickly review it. The first time was in verse 1 when the disciples said to Jesus, look, and they were referring to the wonderful stones of the temple. The word see or look is there. The second time is in verse 5, translated see or look, when Jesus said, see that no one leads you astray. The third time is in verse 9, translated be, as, be on your guard, when Jesus told them to watch out, be on your guard or watch out. And the fourth time is in our passage, verse 23, be on your guard when Jesus told them again the same thing, to watch out. So you see it four times. It's a tremendous theme here. See. See. Look out. Watch out. See with a sense of awareness and understanding. Use that understanding to allow you to see what's really happening. It's a repeated theme from Jesus to his hearers. Therefore, it's a repeated theme from Mark to us as readers. Jesus emphasizes it, then Mark faithfully brings it forward and emphasizes it, and a preacher ought to bring it forward and emphasize the same thing. We must watch out that we do not allow people with easy solutions and impressive actions to distract us from our main task, which is to proclaim the gospel to the nations, to endure to the end, to keep faith in the Lord Jesus. Our Savior, our teacher, is providing here what's needed, knowledge foreknowledge. That's what he says at the end of our passage. Be on your guard. Watch out. Why? Because I have told you all things beforehand. He's given us foreknowledge. They'll know ahead of time. Before AD 70 happens, they'll know exactly what they should be watching for and exactly what they should do in response. The understanding is that God never neglects his people. No matter the terrible suffering that falls upon his people in any generation, in any century, God is with us. And we may not know the whole story about what God is doing in our suffering. Living by faith often means we simply trust God when we cannot see what he's doing. And Jesus wants us to take that opportunity to see, to watch out, to look and not be led astray. Until the last day of our lives, 
or until Jesus comes again. Everything that Jesus provided here is aimed at that goal, that we not be led astray. The Lord Jesus, who had come to Jerusalem on the colt, beginning of chapter 11, had cleared the temple, chapter 11, had taught in the temple the rest of chapter 11 and all of chapter 12, and the one who is heading to the cross soon to become the temple, to replace that old stone temple and be the living temple and to make us then the living temple in Christ by faith, did all of this so that we would not fall away, would not fall into the false teacher's lies. So no matter what comes, Christ will enable us to keep the faith and not be led astray. That is our simple second application point. Avoid being led astray. And I'll end with this verse from Paul in Titus 2.13. We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of, the glory of, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your Son to give us an understanding by your Spirit.